Okay, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We've been coming through the book, this letter of 1 Timothy together. Today we land on chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. Let's pray together. Everybody lean in with me and let's pray together and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, I pray that you would let the fear of you fall on this place. That You would grant us Your presence. Holy Spirit, that You would come. God, that You would rend the heavens and come down. That not only the mountains would quake at Your presence, but so would we. God, manifest Your presence among us as we tremble at Your Word. Were it not for Your promises, Lord, that You would be with us always, even to the ends of the age, that You would stand by us as Your Word is preached, God, were, not, were it not for Your promises, Lord, God, I would run away from, here, run away from this podium with no intention to preach Your Word. But Lord, You've given us Your Word. And Your Word You've told us to preach. God, I pray for every hearer, Lord, that You would let a sobriety fall on this room. That, they would, that every person would take heed how they hear. You said that You look on those that are crushed in spirit and who tremble at Your Word. God, let us be those people before You today. Let us be those people trembling at Your Word. Lord, thank You for, thank you for Your promised help. We love You in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we come to some very, very important verses. Here we have the theme verse, or the theme verses that frame the whole letter that we've been studying. So, you ask the question, Paul, why have you written this letter? 1 Timothy, why have you written this letter? Well, here's the answer. Look at chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul, why'd you write this letter? Well, this is the church order letter. I write these things so that you might know how one ought to conduct himself or behave himself in the church of God. And it may be more accurate to say the local church 
order letter. This is the local church order letter. Do you understand the difference or the distinction between universal church and local church? You understand that distinction? And let me try to give an illustration. I don't give illustrations much, and you might be fixing to find out why. Do you know what the largest living organism on the planet is? The largest living thing on earth. And maybe you've got some big, massive sea creature in your mind, but it's actually the honey mushroom, also known as the honey fungus. Now, it's in the Blue Mountain. If you go to the Blue Mountains of Oregon, this Honey mushroom covers 3.7 square miles. One living organism. Now if you go there, you go to the Blue Mountains, you try to see it, you actually, it'll be pretty much invisible to you because it's underneath the ground, its root systems connect this one living thing underneath the ground for 3.7 square miles. Now what you will see if you go to the Blue Mountains is every now and then you'll see a little, a little uh, popping up of mushrooms here, which is an expression of that massive one organism. You'll see a little popping up of some mushrooms over here and, and a little group of mushrooms over here on a tree and a little group of mushrooms over here scattered throughout the place. Now this is like the church. You have the universal church, which is one worldwide body of Christ made up of all Christians of all time connected to one another in the unity of Christ. And you have the local church, which are the visible expressions of that church that pop up over here and a group of Christians that are the local church over here and a group of Christians that are the local church over here. I know I just compared the church to a humongous fungus. But I hope it sets in your memory. Universal versus local. Now, 1 Timothy is about, the lo- it's a, it's about local church order. Now, why do I say that? Chapter 1, it speaks about that local church in Ephesus and about its doctrine, watching out for the doctrine of that church. Chapter 2, it speaks about the corporate prayer meetings of the church. The universal church has no corporate prayer meeting. Local churches do. It speaks about in chapter 3, the elders of the local church. The universal church doesn't have elders. A local church does. It speaks about the deacons in chapter 3 of the local church. The deacons of the local church. The universal church does not have deacons. Uh, The local church does. And what we see here in verse 15 is this letter is about how one ought to behave themselves in the local church. Like the church at Ephesus or like... Grace Community Church. So, brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this as the local church order letter. letter, And this is urgent. It's very urgent that you understand this. Think about the urgency that's in the Apostle Paul here. He says, I I plan to come to you soon. I'm urgent to get to you. He, He is wanting to get to them soon, it says in verse 14. But he says, look, if I have to delay... In case I have to delay, I'm going to write this letter to you that you might know how one ought to conduct themselves in the local church. This is an urgent matter, according to the Apostle Paul. And it should be urgent to all of us. If you look around you, you look at the state of the church and our culture, it's been blasted by false conversion. It seems to be given over to the creativity of men rather than what saith the Word of God. 
then you would know this is a very urgent matter. What does the Scripture say about our behavior in the local church? Now, I want to say three things. I want to say three things about uh, the church in light of this passage. Three things about the church in light of this passage. And the first thing I want to say is this. Written words matter. Written words really matter. Now you see this in verse 14. He says, I am writing these things to you. I'm writing. He's writing these things. Brothers and sisters, written words matter. God has given us His written word. Written words sitting in your lap right now. Think about the way the author of Psalm 19 speaks about these written words. He calls them the law of the Lord. He calls it the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. And he says, more to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. The written words of God. Think about how the author of Psalm 119 speaks about these words. Oh, how I love your word. It's my meditation all the day long. The written words of God. Beautiful gift to us from our Savior. Written words matter, and we ought to trust them. Do you trust the sufficiency of the written words of God? Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, transforming the soul. That word perfect means complete. The Word of God is complete. It's not lacking anything. It's full. It's whole. It's all that you need for your soul's needs. It's the law of the Lord which is perfect. It lacks nothing in any of your soul needs. It's the sufficient Word of God. Now many people pay homage to this doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. But if you look at their life, you wouldn't know they believe it. Do you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? What would a person's life look like if they sincerely believed that these words are sufficient for my soul and sufficient for this church? What would their life look like? Everything they do, everything they believe will be connected to this Word. They would refuse to lean on their own wisdom or the wisdom of men disconnected from God's Word. They would refuse to lean on it. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Now many people know that verse. That's verse 16. But not as many know verse 17, where it says, So that, these words are breathed out by God, so that the man of God might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. Is there a good work out there? The Scripture thoroughly equips you for it because it's sufficient. It's the sufficient Word of God. Somebody says, well, the Scripture can't prepare you for this work. Okay, must not be a good work. Must not be a good work. As it says, so that the man of God might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Scripture is sufficient. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Again, many people know this verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. Brothers and sisters, don't lean on your own understanding. Lean on His understanding in His Word. Trust the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. Many people know that verse, but what about the next verse? It says, in all your ways acknowledge Him. So where do we apply the sufficiency of Scripture? In all your ways. 
in all your ways. Do you believe the sufficiency of Scripture? Now, there are common areas of our lives where people who confess this doctrine, the sufficiency of Scriptures, tend to hit the eject button. Some of these areas would be areas like parenting. Parenting. Scripture is not sufficient to tell you how to be a parent. You need to go grab some advice from a professional somewhere that knows something that God's Word doesn't tell us. Or another area would be money. Ignore the wise Scripture and what it says about money, but go find a wise financial advisor. Or counseling. The Scripture is not enough for your soul's needs. You need godless secular psychology. You could go on and on. Missions, even missions today. The church is full of world mission strategies that come from the mind of created men rather than the words of God. Shouldn't we just do what He says? Shouldn't we trust the sufficiency of Scripture? And you could go on and on. Common areas. But here's one common area where the sufficiency of Scripture tends to not be applied. And it's the local church. It's the topic of this letter, 1 Timothy. The local church. Church. It's the local church. Now, has God left us in a fog about what the local church is and and what the nature of the local church is and what the church is to do and how you're to connect to the local church? Has, Has God just left us in a fog? Just figure it out for yourself. Just be pragmatic. Just do what works. Is that what God has done? No. Chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, he says, I write these things that you might know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. We haven't been left in a fog. 1 Timothy is beautiful light from God about the nature of the church and the practice of the church. We've got other places in Scriptures as well. But 1 Timothy is certainly... Beautiful light from God. So the first thing that I want us convinced of as a church is, brothers and sisters, written words matter. These written words, the written words in the book that's in your lap, they matter. God's given us a biblical standard for His church. A standard for the church that did not come from culture. It doesn't come from creative men, creative pastors. It comes from God's Word. And it's important. We have a whole letter in God's Word, 1 Timothy, devoted, devoted to this topic. Brothers and sisters, this is important. Written words about the local church matter. Now, the second thing I want to say is this. The life of a disciple of Jesus ought to be a church-shaped life. The life of a disciple of Jesus ought to be a church-shaped life. Life. Again, verse 15. This letter is about how, what does it say? How one, or a person, it's about how one ought to behave themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So, this verse tells me that, that the life of a disciple of Jesus should be a church-shaped life. This is telling you how one ought to behave himself or conduct himself in the church of God. We have instructions about this. The life of a disciple should be a church-shaped life. Now, now, what would be the antithesis of that? It would be some Christianized version of individualism. It's just about me and my soul. It's just between me and God, and that's how I live my life. You know, show up at church on Sunday, but otherwise, it's just about me and God. This, 
Christianized but unbiblical, not found in the Scriptures version of individualism. Now think about what the, the rest of the New Testament. Think about the epistles of the New Testament. Over and over again, they're addressed to churches. Not the, just the individual, but they're addressed to churches. And they lay out the doctrine of Jesus Christ at the beginning of most of those letters. And then when it gets practical, when those letters turn practical, what do we usually see? We see stuff like forbear one another in love. We see love one another. We see be hospitable to one another. What we see is the practical, turner, uh, the practical corner is turned in God's Word in these letters is this one another type stuff because the life of a disciple should be a church-shaped life. A church-shaped life. Chapter 3, verse 15, it does not just say, I write so that you might know how you ought to behave. Period. It doesn't say that. It says, I write that you might know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. Which is the church. So when you're considering the spiritual health of an individual soul, what should be on your mind about the spiritual health of an individual soul? Do they love Jesus? Are they growing in their love for Jesus? Amen, that's important. Are they digging into the Word of God? Do they love the Word of God? Are they digesting the Word of God? Yes and amen. That's important about the spiritual health of an individual. Do they love prayer? Are they walking with God in the secret place of prayer? Amen. That's important. But listen, do not neglect this. Is their life a church-shaped life? That they're a part of the body of Christ. That they're hooked in, locked arms with the people of God. That they're growing in their love for one another. That they're a part of the relationships in the church and the decisions of the church, and on and on it could go. Is it a church-shaped life? Now, third thing, third thing I want to say connected to this passage and about the church is this. Healthy churches are churches that are growing into their identity as the family of God and the dwelling place of the living God who uphold truth. So healthy churches are churches that are growing into their identity as the family of God, the dwelling place of the living God, who uphold the truth. Now why do I say this is the identity of the church? Where am I getting those three aspects from of the identity of the church? Well, I get it from verse 15. Verse 15, it says, the household of God. You see that? How we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Of God. Now, now, that's referring to God's family. When you hear household of God, you should hear it's a warm statement. It's very warm about the family of God, about brothers and sisters in Christ with the same Father. The church is called the household of God. If you go up to chapter 3, verse 4, and chapter 3, verse 12, an elder and a deacon, they must manage their household well. Having their children in submission with all dignity. Same word here, same idea. That this is talking about the family of God. So the church is called, very warmly here, the family of God. Brothers and sisters, saved by Christ, adopted in and given one Father together. That's the family of God. Second thing I said about this identity is the dwelling place of the living God. We'll keep reading. It says, the church 
of the living God. The church of the living God. Why does it say living God? It's contrasted with, He's not dead. He's not like these dead idols. He is the living God. He is alive. The church is not a historical society. We don't just remember a bunch of stuff that happened in the past, but we worship a God who is alive now. In real time. He's our living God. And we're the church, not of historical God only, but the living God. Our God is alive. He's risen. He is not dead. We're the assembly of, the, of people under a God who is alive. So the household of God is family. The church of the living God. We're His dwelling place. He is alive. And third, again right here in verse 15, it says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar, the church is called a pillar and buttress of the truth. The truth. Uh, John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify the Father. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. We're truth defenders and truth proclaimers. That's what the church is. The family of God. The dwelling place of the living God who uphold the truth of God. So healthy churches are growing into these aspects of who we are. Now, do you see how important the local church is? Just from reading these three, uh, these three titles of the church, do you see how important the church is? It's the family of God. It's where God lives. This, this is, these are the ones that uphold and defend and proclaim the truth. You see how important the church is. And Satan certainly does. And that's the reason why Satan seeks to attack the church and ruin the church and deceive the church. You go read Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 12, it speaks about Satan as one who has great wrath because he knows that he only has a short time. It says that he goes to make war against the saints of God, those who keep the commands of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan hates the church and he wants to trip her up, ruin her and deceive her. Satan knows how important this is. He knows this is the family of God. The dwelling place of the living God who uphold the truth. And so, Satan is happy when one of these or more, but at least one of these aspects of the local church is neglected. That makes Satan very happy when just one of these aspects of the local church is neglected. So I want to give some examples like some examples of what it would look like for a church to neglect one of these aspects. My first example is this. A church striving to be family, but to the neglect of the truth. Because you know the truth might divide the family, right? So they're trying to be a family, but to the neglect of the truth. Now a church like this is usually marked by what I call community going wild. Community, community, community. Everything's about us cultivating community. The, pa the pastors are community uh, cultivating experts. All about community. And they really got to flip. They really ought to concentrate on what Jesus did, which is love one another and it creates community rather than trying to create community so they can love one another. 
They're striving to be family, but to the neglect of the truth. These kind of churches are usually marked by a low view of sound doctrine, but a really high view of just doing life together. They're marked by elaborate, segregated, uh, small groups to meet everybody's community needs. you got old people small group, young people small group, and the the businessman small group, and the homemaker small group, and everything coming together. These elaborate things, they're, they're marked by that to meet everybody's community needs. They're also marked by sermons that are short, got to be short, inspiring, and of course they need to be very relatable. The church has gone community, community gone wild to the neglect of the truth. Let me give another example. A second example would be the truth warrior church that neglects the living God. Now these people, they will go to war for the truth. Mainly on social media. But they'll go to war for the truth. They take seminary classes for fun. They love doctrinal discussions about what God has done in history and we commend them for that. But it's like they've left their God in history. It's like He's not the living God, who is alive now, even as we speak. History is important, but the church is not a historical society. This kind of church gets really uncomfortable when you start asking God to manifest His presence in our midst, or you start asking God, God, give us an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This kind of church is really uncomfortable with things like that. A picture of this kind of church may have been given to us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Just so happens to be the church at Ephesus. In the picture of that church, it says, Jesus says, I commend you in this, that you hate certain false doctrines, your truth warriors. I commend you in this, that you tested those that say they're apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be liars. They're truth warriors. But he said, but I got this against you, and you need to repent. That you abandon the love You abandon the love that you had at first. The truth warriors that have neglected the living God. These churches are usually marked by a praiseworthy concern for the truth. Praise God for that. But they're typically very weak in prayer and fasting. Very weak in zealous evangelism. Very weak in passionate worship because they don't live as if He's still alive. They live as if He once was. Now a third example I'll give as a church that has neglected one of these aspects. third example would be the encounter God on Sunday church that neglects the rest of the week. Now they want to experience God. They want to experience God on Sunday. And then they neglect the rest of the of the week. They want to experience God, but they seek it by their own means and carnal means. They seek it by light shows and fog machines and a popping band and go you could go on and on. And they seek this experience of God that's produced from their own flesh. But what about the rest of the week? What about the family of God? What about locking arms with people for the mission of God? Maybe they should spend less money on the Sunday experience and more money on the old nation's mission of God. What about rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep? They seek an experience on Sunday, but they neglect the family of God the rest of the week. So Grace Community Church, 
Well, these three titles that are here in verse 15, the family of God, household of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's not neglect any of these aspects, but let's grow in every single one of them. Now, how can we do that? How can we grow in these ways? Now, listen to me closely. There's no top-down strategy here. There are no programs to put in place to cause us to grow as a church in all three of these aspects. Pastors are not event planners. They're not program sustainers. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 says they're supposed to be equippers, equippers of the saints for the work of the ministry. So there's no top-down strategy here to cause us to grow in these three aspects. But growth will happen when each individual member of Grace Community Church gives himself to these concerns, gives himself or gives herself to these things as each individual member goes after this. Now that's what it says here, right? It says, I'm writing, Paul says, verse 15, I'm writing of how one individual ought to conduct themselves in the local church. So let me do this. Let me give some uh, personal exhortations uh, to, that, that I hope would encourage us to grow in these three aspects. And I want to give them to you in the form of, of uh, self-examination questions. You can take these questions home with you and get on your knees before the Bible, before God, and ask Him to grow you in this. But here's some personal exhortations. Number one, brothers and sisters, hear the question. How are you behaving, as it says in verse 15, how are you behaving as a member of the household of God? As a member of God's family, brothers and sisters with one father, how are you behaving as a member of the household of God? Now, many of you are experiencing this, uh, in this church, you're experiencing this family-like love. Well, man, you just, you know, your best friends in the world, these close, these close, intimate relationships are in the body of Christ, and there's this sharpening that happens with the body of Christ, and this care for one another. You know that when you fall, brothers and sisters are there to pick you up. A lot of you are experiencing that, and praise God for that. Here's my exhortation to you, Philippians 1.9. Paul's talking to the Philippian church, and he says, I have affections for you with the affections of Christ, and my prayer for you is that your love might abound more and more. Many of you are experiencing this family-like love in the body of Christ. Listen, abound more and more. You can grow in it. You've not arrived. Be more intentional in your love for the body of Christ. Be more sacrificial in your love for the body of Christ. Grow in it more and more. Now, for some of you, this is not your experience. This family-like love is not your experience. And here's my exhortation to you. My exhortation to you is to move towards it. Move towards it. There are no shortcuts here. You must strive towards that. God wants you to strive towards this family-like love and connection with the body of Christ. So I would tell you, I would exhort you to be moving towards it. Well, how do you do that? Look, when the church meets up, when the church comes together, whether it be on a Sunday or whether it be in those, in those fellowship groups if you're able, when the church gathers together, be there. You can't have intimacy without proximity. 
Be there. Be with the people of God. Hebrews 10 says, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Show up early. Linger late if you can with the people of God. 1 Peter 4, 9 says, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Brothers and sisters, move toward it. Be hospitable. Have people into your home. Get to know them. Encourage them and be encouraged. Be on the offense. Be so much on the offensive of digging into the body of Christ and pouring yourself out for them that you don't even notice it when people don't talk to you. Be on the offensive and, 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 and pray. Take out that membership list and pray. You'd be surprised how much as you pray for the body of Christ, even people you don't know that well, you'd be surprised how much your heart is warm toward them. You'd be surprised. Second exhortation through a question. How are you behaving as a member of the church of the living God? The second aspect. How are you behaving as a, as a member of the church of the living God? I love you. You go read Exodus 40. And you've just gone through all these details. Lots of details about the building of this tabernacle. But you get to Exodus 40 and guess what? Just a building. It's just a building. Until it says and the cloud came down, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's just a building until the living God dwells there. Brothers and sisters, don't you want this for Grace Community Church, that we would be the church of the living God? That we would grow into that identity. We're the church of the living God. He's alive in our midst, and it's obvious. It's obvious. Don't you want that for this church? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25 speaks about a church gathering. And it says unbelievers come in. And when the unbelievers come in, they fall down on their face. And they fall down and they say, God is truly among you. Don't you want that for your church? It's obvious, man, God is in the midst of these people. The living God is in the midst of these people. So here would be my exhortation. Pray things. Pray things like Luke 11, verse 13. It says, If you, being a father and evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will He he give the Holy Spirit? How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Pray things like that. Oh, Holy Spirit, come in our lives and in our midst. Pray things like Isaiah 64, 1. Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Pray things like Isaiah 44, verse 3, where it says the outpouring or the pouring out of the Spirit of God. God, pour out your Spirit in this place. Pray things like that. Strengthen this church and the things that put the living God on display. He's not just a, he's not just a God from the past. But strengthen this church in in things that put the living God on display. Strengthen this church in prayer and fasting. Strengthen this church in passionate worship to God. Because we don't just sing songs about God, we sing songs to God in His presence. Strengthen this church in zealous evangelism because our God is still on mission and our God will complete His mission and we get to be a part of it. That's alive. That's alive. Third, personal exhortation through a question. 
How are you behaving as a member of the pillar and buttress of the truth? Now, these are, these are construction terms, okay? The buttress holds it firm. The wall won't fall down because the buttress holds it firm. And the pillar holds it high so everyone can see. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is that which holds the truth firm and holds the truth high for all to see. We are truth defenders and we are truth proclaimers. How are you behaving as a member of the church which is the pillar and buttress of the truth? Now, who who does it say? Think about it. Who does it say here are truth defenders and truth proclaimers? Does it say pastors? No. Does it say seminary professors? No. What does it say? It says the church, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. This is a call for every member of the church, every single, listen to me, every single member of the local church to love the truth of God. Psalm 119.97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day long. It's a call for every single member of the church to delight in the truth. Psalm 119, verse 35, Your commandments, which are my delight. To know the truth. If you've been through our membership classes, you remember that 3 a.m. knowledge. Are you growing in your knowledge of the truth? Is your 3 a.m. knowledge increasing? That 3 a.m. knowledge, that's that knowledge that the things that you know, if at 3 a.m., middle of the night, 3 a.m., your wife pokes you in the ribs and wakes you up and says, what's your phone number? You know it like that. Are you increasing in your knowledge of the truth that you know the gospel, you know the word of God with that 3 a.m. type knowledge? It's just there, planted deep in your soul. We must be defenders of the truth. We must be, each one of us, proclaimers of the truth. Let me try to drive this in with somebody that can say it better than me, with Charles Spurgeon. He says it like this. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I've seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the Word of the Lord. Not crawl all over its surface, but eat right into it till we've taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions and the historic facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language. And your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his, and you'll see that it's almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us the Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. Each member 
a part of the pillar and ground, defending and proclaiming the truth of God. So, why is the local church so important? Why should any of this matter to you? Because we're the family of God, household of God. We're the dwelling place of the living God. He lives in our midst. And we're the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, can we get an example? Can we get an example of what it looks like to uphold the truth? Can we get an example of that? Yes, we can. Look at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, this pillar and ground of the truth, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's an example of how we uphold the truth. The truth that we uphold as a church is a revealed truth. It's revealed by God. That's what it means here when it says the mystery of godliness. That word mystery does not mean spooky. It doesn't mean mysterious is the way that that, uh, we tend to think of mysterious. But go study other places in the Bible, especially Ephesians 3, and the mystery is the hidden truth of God now revealed. We proclaim a truth. We hold to a truth that has been revealed by God. The mystery of godliness. We uphold great truth. It says here in verse 16, great indeed, great, great truth that we hold firm and proclaim. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And we uphold it, brothers and sisters, together. You see, it says here, great indeed, we confess. The NAS says, by common confession. Great indeed, common confession is this mystery of godliness. Then we get it. We get these six lines that show us that the truth that we uphold is not just revealed truth. It's not just great truth. It's not just truth that we confess together and uphold together, but it's Christ-centered, Christ-saturated truth. It's the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. And you get six lines here all about Jesus from His incarnation to His ascension. You get six lines. And this little, as you see it in your Bible, set-apart poem or hymn, six lines about Jesus. Now the way this is written, beginning with He was manifested in the flesh, the way this is written is in a, a, a poetic style. Okay, this is more than likely either a Christian hymn that Paul wrote or, or some Christian hymn that he grabbed and recorded right here in his letter. This is a Christian hymn, an early Christian hymn or poem. Best way to understand it, I believe, is it's three couplets. Three couplets that complement each other. Let me try to explain that. The first couplet, look at the first two lines. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. So we've got the coming of Jesus in the flesh, and we've got the resurrection of Jesus, and He's vindicated by the Spirit who raised Him from the dead. We've got the coming of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus with His apparent death in between. Next couplet. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. In other words... He has the attention of the angelic realm and the human realm. Next couplet. 
Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He's in the world and He's in glory. He's the Savior of the world. He's the King of glory. Three couplets that relate and complement to one another. But we can explain that, but here's the thing. Hear me out. Christian hymns, like this one, are not just meant to be dissected and broken up like we just did. They're, They're meant to be used to worship God. Things like this, Christian hymns are explosions of praise to the living God. Not just dissect the words and the structure, but worship the living God over this truth that we uphold. This Christ-centered, Christ-saturated truth that we uphold. So that's what I want us to do right now. In closing, I want us to worship God together. You're welcome to put your pen down and let's worship the living God over these Six truths. So please, confess this after me. I'll say it, and then you say it. Confess it after me. He was manifested in the flesh. flesh. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Let this hit you afresh. Let this reminder hit you afresh that the Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth, became a man. He became a man. God contracted to a span, indescribably made man. Can you believe it? That the God of the universe took on flesh and blood. And why? Why did He do it? Why did He take on flesh? Because we need someone to die for us, and God can't die. Only a man can die. And so He becomes a man, He takes on flesh, and He's crucified in our place. He became flesh. And He dwelt among us. Second line, confess it with me. Vindicated by the Spirit. Spirit. How can we know Jesus is God incarnate? How can we know He's God incarnate? It says here, because He's vindicated. He was vindicated. You know He's God in the flesh because He's vindicated by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was there at His baptism. You remember that? When Jesus was baptized and God split the sky and the booming voice of the Father came from heaven. That's my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended on Him like a dove. Vindicated by the Holy Spirit. He's there in the life of Christ through mighty wonders and mighty signs. He raises the dead by the Holy Spirit. He heals the sick. He opens blind eyes and deaf ears, vindicated. This is the Son of God. And ultimately, ultimately, He's vindicated by the Holy Spirit. As it says in Romans 8.11, that the Spirit who raised Him from the dead. Romans 1.4, He's declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. How do we know He's the God-man? Because people saw Him rise out of that tomb. He's alive. That's how we know. Vindicated by the Spirit. Number three, confess it with me. Seen by angels. angels. Jesus has the attention. Think about it. Jesus has all the attention, and He has for a long time, of the heavenly host of angels. They were with Him at His birth. They made the birth announcement. Remember that? Great news to you of great joy because this day in the city of David, a Savior has been born. The angels were there. He's got their attention. 
They were ministering to him in, in, uh, when he was tempted. Remember 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And Jesus goes into that, temp- that temptation. He's being tempted just like me and you. And yet he defeats Satan once and again and again. Defeats his temptations. And when it's all over, the angels come and minister to him. He's got the attention of the angels. He had angel eyes on him when he was in Gethsemane. Remember, he's in Gethsemane before he goes to the cross and he's sweating great drops of blood and he's filled with anxiety because he knows that he's about to go to the cross. And what that means is he's about to absorb the wrath of the Father for people like me and you. And after he endures in Gethsemane, it says the angels come and minister to him. Their eyes were on him at the cross as he was crucified and wounded for our transgressions. Their eyes were on him at the resurrection when he rose from the dead. There were even angels there at the empty tomb to tell people like me and you that are hard-headed and unbelieving that he's risen indeed. See the place where they laid him? 1 Peter 1.12 calls these things things into which angels long to look. Things in which angels long to look. Fourth thing we'll confess together. Proclaimed among the nations. He not only has the attention of the angelic heavenly host, but also of humans from every nation. There are people in every nation that love Him and despise Him, but He's got everybody's attention. Think of the beginnings of this humble gospel just began with a few Jews in a small corner of the world, exploded on planet earth. This is a global king, a global Christ that we serve. Revelation 5 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and power and honor. And you know who's singing that? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You know who's singing that in Revelation 5, 9? It says people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, people, language. He's an all-nations king. Fifth confession, believed on in the world. Not only is he proclaimed among the nations, but he's believed on among the nations. He's believed on in the world. And those who believe on him are saved. So he's, the, he's believed on in the world, meaning he's the Savior. He's the Savior of the world. He's a worldwide Savior. He's believed on in the world. He's Savior of the world. In other words, Jesus is not some little village God that the nations heard about and then forgot. He's the global Savior, the global God of glory that the nations have heard about and are continuing to hear about in their being saved. And He's purchasing a people for Himself from all people groups on planet earth. John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, it says this, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Of the world. John chapter 4, verse 42, the Samaritans, the Samaritan village got to spend a little extra time with Jesus, and this was their conclusion. This is indeed the Savior of the world. Believed on in the world. And our last confession here: taken up in glory. 
Not only is He the Savior of the world, but He's the King of glory. Not only Savior of the world, but He's the King of glory. Now who is this King of glory? Who is it? It's the one that is said was manifested in the flesh. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Do you know what this means? He's taken up in glory to sit on a throne. A man, a man, a human sits on the throne of the universe. It's amazing. He didn't take on flesh, have it for a short time, die, and then come out of his flesh. He took on flesh, and it remains with him today. He is today fully God, fully man. And a man sits, the God-man sits, on the throne of heaven. Now it says here he was taken up. He was taken up in glory. This means there was some sort of coronation ceremony. There was a, some kind of welcoming into glory of the King. This moment where Jesus as now not just God, but fully God, fully man. A moment where He enters in to the throne room of heaven and sits down. That's the King. He was taken up. There's some sort of coronation ceremony. Now we get some idea about that. And I just want to read a few verses to help us get a picture of it. In Psalm 24, it says this. It's a psalm about, verse 3, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? It's a psalm like that. Answering that question. Who? Who? Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Who who shall stand in His holy place? Who can do that? And it goes on beginning in verse 7 to speak about one that does it. And we get this picture of Christ and here's what He screams as He's coronated, as He moves towards that heavenly city and comes to the gates of heaven and He screams this in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates! Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Did a man just say that? At the gates of heaven, did a human just look at the ancient doors and say, be lifted up? And somebody on the other side says, who is this King of glory? And his answer is this, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. He says it again, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Who is this man? Who is this God-man? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. So He enters into the city. And after He gets into the city, we get some more insight as He enters into the throne room in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what it says. Daniel 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. It's never happened before. That a man would command, let those ancient doors be lifted up, that the King of glory might come in. And he walks up in front of the ancient of days. A man did this. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Paul's. Think back to Psalm 110. What does the Ancient of Days say to him? Psalm 110 verse 1, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, what did He say? 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so he sits down and look at what it says in verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the King of glory. The Lord Jesus Christ. Grace Community Church, we are His church. We're His family, the household of God, We're the dwelling place of the living God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that's the kind of truth that we hold up and hold firm. Let's ask God to help us do that. Father, thank You again. Thank You so much, Lord, that we can come before You and ask You for help, Lord. And thank You, God, that As we do that, we can be full of faith that You're so quick to help us, Lord. We believe Your Word. Our help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. That You, God, are our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Well, God, we need help. Be our help, Lord. We want to be faithful as Your church. God, grow us, please, as a family. God, I pray that You would grow us in love and intimate, close relationships, God, for Your glory. Let us grow into this identity as brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, for any among us that feel distant or feel like they're not experiencing this kind of love in the church, God, help them. Open open their eyes, God, to reasons why and ways that they can move forward. And please, God, help them. Grant them by Your grace those relationships. God, help us to grow as a church, the church of the living God. You are our living God. And Lord, I pray that You would manifest Your presence in our midst, Lord. That You would dwell among us in such an obvious way that even the unbelievers bow down and say that You are truly among us. God, help us to grow as the pillar and the buttress of the truth. God, I pray, Lord, that You would make us warriors for the truth. Make us happy warriors for Your truth, Lord. Cause us to love Your Word and delight in Your commandments. Cause us to know Your Word and defend it and proclaim it, Lord. Fill our hearts with zeal. Open our eyes to anything that hinders us in that. And Lord, we worship You. We worship You. Lord Jesus, we worship You. You are our King. Manifested in the flesh, ascended on high. You're our King and we submit to You. We love You in Jesus' name. Amen.